Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today, we want to start our two-part discussion on chemistry and physics. And while I'm sure a lot of you are super thrilled to be listening to this episode right now, um, if I were you, you probably are only listening for the fact that you have an exam on this topic coming up. Uh, I don't know many people that would listen to this just for the sake of it, but hopefully it's going to be helpful in terms of simplifying a lot of these concepts, making them a lot easier for why we need to know this for our anesthesia practice and what are some of the real world examples about why these laws and theories actually make sense. So without further ado, Tanner, you want to just start us off here with the basic structure of an atom? So an atom is arranged around a center core. So that's the nucleus. The nucleus will have neutrons, which don't have any charge, and then they'll have protons. And those obviously have a positive charge. And then around the nucleus, you'll have these circular pathways that will house electrons. Those have a negative charge and those will spin around. So, I mean, you've heard this a million times, but think of it like a solar system. You have a planet in the center and then you have these rings orbiting around that have the electrons that are negatively charged going around that nucleus. Electrons are going to fill the smallest ring around the nucleus. And then once that ring is filled, it's going to go to the next ring. And once that ring fills, it will go into the next ring. It's important to know about this because when we talk later about different bonds and the types of bonds that are created and their strengths, it's important that you just have an understanding of how these electrons are functioning around the nucleus. So for the most part, we're only going to be talking about the outermost ring. Uh, this is where the electrons will give the atom its charge. And these are called the valence electrons. So the valence electrons are the most unstable. Uh, I think of this as like the currency. So again, when we talk later about the different types of bonds, these valence electrons are really what's going to be exchanged or combined or shared with other atoms. And so this is what is the main thing that we're thinking about when we're talking about electrons. Think about the most exterior ring, these valence electrons. So if you can look at a periodic table, it's devised with rows and columns. And as you go across each row, that represents a different electron ring. So that top row will be the first ring around the nucleus. The second row, then that atom will have two rings any atom in that third row will have three rings, et cetera. And as you can see here, with each subsequent row that you go down on the periodic table, it just gains an extra layer of these electron shells or rings, if you will. And that outer one is going to always be the valence ring. So the important thing that we want to talk about now is the columns going left to right across the periodic table. And this represents the amount of electrons that are in that outer ring. Ideally, an atom always wants to have a full amount in their valence shell. So for example, let's say an atom's outermost ring contains eight electrons, but currently it has seven valence electrons. The atom is either going to want to gain one more electron to make all eight spots filled, or it can get rid of the seven valence electrons altogether, and that eliminates that outermost electron ring, and then it makes the next biggest ring the valence shell. Hopefully that makes sense. An atom is always seeking to have a completely saturated ring, whether that means get rid of all the electrons that are partially in the outer ring or to gain more electrons to fill that outer ring completely. Obviously, in this case, if a 
atom already has seven of the eight filled, it seems easier just to gain an extra electron rather than get rid of seven. And this is how bonds are going to be formed. These different atoms are going to try to interact with each other to satisfy and make these perfectly filled valence shells. So the first bond we want to talk about is called an ionic bond. And when you look at the periodic table, if you're looking from left to right, atoms on the left side are predominantly metals, except for hydrogen. And then atoms on the right side are predominantly nonmetals. As you read the columns left to right, each subsequent atom is going to gain a proton and an electron. So let's just say you're looking at the very left side of the periodic table. All those atoms are going to have one electron in their valence shell. And then as you go to the right, it's going to have two and then three and then four all the way to the far side. And for the most part, the atoms are going to have eight electrons in its valence shell. All the atoms then on the right side, the outermost right column, are going to be called noble gases. And these are atoms that have a complete saturated outer electron shell. And they're going to be the most stable because they don't want to react with anything simply because of the fact that they already have that completed shell. So as you can see here, it all depends on these atoms striving to get to this point where they have a complete shell. So let's look at an example here. The atom neon has a full number of electrons in the valence shell because it is on the rightmost column of the periodic table. But if you look at chlorine, it's the second most right column. It's just left of that neon. So it has one empty spot on its outermost electron. If you look at sodium on the far left side, that very first column, it only has one valence electron and the rest of those spots are empty. So if they're going to be trying to get a completely saturated valence electron shell, it makes sense then that chlorine, since it already has seven of the eight, it's going to be much easier for it just to gain one more electron and fill that last spot. And in the case of sodium, it's going to be much easier for it just to lose that one electron and get rid of the outermost shell altogether. So what happens then if a sodium atom and a chlorine atom come together in close proximity, the chlorine is going to gladly take that one extra electron away from the sodium atom. And then both those atoms are going to be happy because they both have a full outer shell. So we call this an ionic bond. It's when an electron is completely transferred from one atom to the other. And by doing this, the sodium atom now has one less electron. And we consider this to have a positive charge then, because if you remember an electron is a negative charge. So if, if we get rid of that electron, now we're going to be positive overall. And we call this a cation. And now the chlorine, since it gained one more electron, it's going to have a negative charge, and we call this an anion. Typically, metals and nonmetals will react and create this ionic bond with each other. And again, this is just because metals are on the predominantly left side and nonmetals are on the right side of the periodic table. So really, when you start to have these bonds formed, when two or more atoms start to create this connection, that's what we call now a molecule. All right. Hopefully you're still sticking with us. And if you're driving, you've not fallen asleep at the wheel yet or anything, but Hopefully, again, this is all mostly review. Uh, hopefully, this is just kind of like a brush up on things that you need to know. Maybe these minute details are things that you've forgotten. So we'll continue on with the different types of bonds that we want to discuss. So we've talked about an ionic bond. Now we'll talk about covalent bonds. So the difference here is that an ionic bond is going to transfer that electron. In a covalent bond, you're going to share electrons. So in that outermost ring with the valence electrons, they will share one electron or two electrons with one another, and that will cause the bond. These are the strongest bonds. So think about like two chlorine atoms that are in close proximity with each other. They will just share one electron with each other since they both have seven in that outermost ring. They'll share one and they'll both have eight. They're both happy. And again, this is considered the strongest type of bond here, the covalent bond.
Usually these are between non-metals and uh, you should also know that they can share multiple electrons. So uh, each shared electron will be another covalent bond. So you can have multiple covalent bonds with the same number of atoms. So like with chlorine, you have just one covalent bond with a different element where you're sharing two electrons, then you'd have two covalent bonds. An example of this would be oxygen. So oxygen atoms will share two of their electrons, and then that will form a double bond. If you have two of the same atoms, so for instance, like we just said, oxygen and oxygen that have a covalent bond, they will share the electrons evenly because they have the same properties on either side. They're both the exact same atom. This is different though, if you have two different types of atoms. So take for instance, hydrogen and oxygen. And if those are sharing electrons then they will create what's called a polar covalent bond. So polar covalent bonds still share electrons like the regular covalent bonds do, except since they have different properties, they're different atoms, then you will tend to have one side that is being that pulls the electrons closer to that side. So by doing this, this causes one side to be a little bit more negative. And then the other side of the bond is slightly more positive. And these charges are called dipoles. And so this will be the difference in the charges, negative and positive. And this is simply because the electrons that are being shared are little more to one side or the other, not exactly in the middle, like you would have with a molecule that has two identical atoms. When talking about dipole bonds, it's important to understand that opposite charges attract. So we know this, this is something that you've learned in first grade, but it's important to know how that plays into these dipole bonds. So the partially positive side of a dipole will be attracted to the partial negative side of a different bond. So again, another example of this would be a water molecule is made up of a polar covalent bond between two hydrogen atoms, and then you have an oxygen atom as well. So the oxygen atom will pull the shared electrons closer to itself and it has a negative dipole, whereas the hydrogens will have more of a positive dipole. So the electrons are going to be pulled closer over there to the oxygen. Again, we know electrons are negative, And so that would mean that the other side, the hydrogens would be a little bit more positive. If another water molecule comes floating by, then the partial positive side of the second water molecule is going to be attracted to the partial negative. So you'll have the hydrogens that again, that partial positive will be attracted to the partial negative, the oxygen part of the other water molecule. And this will create, it's called a dipole dipole bond between the two molecules. One other thing that I should mention here is that technically this is considered a hydrogen bond. We're not going to get into the details of that now, but this is what we want to talk about now. This is a good example of a dipole dipole bond. Just bear in mind, this is also a hydrogen bond as well. So it's an important distinction to make that a dipole is a partial charge, whereas an ion has a complete positive or negative charge. So when you have the electron completely transferred over between a sodium and a chloride atom, that creates an ionic bond, which forms two separate ions that are just held together because you have the positive charge of the sodium and the negative charge of the chlorine. And the opposite charges attracting are what create the ionic bond. Here, the dipole-dipole is just a partial and a partial. As we move into this next one, this is more of a force than a bond, and it's called Van der Waals forces. And if you understand dipoles now, this will make a lot more sense. So Van der Waals forces is the idea that in any atom, the valence electrons in the outer ring are constantly spinning around. 
So it's not like you have a nucleus and you have four electrons equally spaced throughout this ring and they're stationary. It doesn't work like that. You have electrons constantly spinning around. And at any point, some of these electrons can be more grouped together on one side of the atom than the other. And this may be completely instantaneously, but without a doubt, you're going to create a partial negative charge on one side of this atom and a partial positive charge on the other if you have a lot of those electrons congregating in one side of that electron ring versus the other. And so while this is super temporary, it does create a very quick dipole because you have that partial charge. And if you have two atoms that come into close proximity with each other and you have this partial negative because the electrons are on one side of an atom and then you have the partial positive of a different atom, those can have a very instantaneously attraction to each other. So obviously this is going to be a super weak connection because this is just super instantaneous, but it is a force that we need to consider. So this is going to be the weakest force of the ones that we've talked about. Tanner already mentioned the strongest is going to be your covalent bond followed by your ionic, followed by your dipole-dipole, and then now your van der Waals. So in review, that's the strongest to the weakest. And the last thing I want to make mentioned up before we move on here is that there's two different kinds of connections that we're talking about. You're going to have your intramolecular bonds and your intermolecular bonds. Intramolecular are bonds made within a molecule. So that's the connection in the water molecule example that Tanner used. That's going to be the connection between the two hydrogens and the oxygen in that single water molecule. Whereas an intermolecular bond is going to be the connection between two or more molecules. So this is where you have that dipole-dipole hydrogen bonding connection between two separate water molecules coming together. The way I remember this is in college, if you were an athlete that wasn't necessarily part of the collegiate team, but you did intramurals, intramurals, intra for within the college or university that you were at. Whereas if you did intercollegiate sports, if you were an intercollegiate athlete, you competed for the university and competed against other schools. So I remember inter is between other atoms or other schools and tra is within that same school or within that same atom. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. So we've talked about the different types of bonds and how those interplay with one another. The next thing that we'll discuss here is the different states that we can find things in. So solid, liquid, and gas are the three things that we want to talk about. Molecules can be in any of these three different phases, depending on the strength and amount of the bonds between those molecules. So the more strength and frequency of these bonds will result in more molecules being held really close together, and that will be a solid. The next thing would be a liquid. And then if there are a few intermolecular bonds, that last thing will be a gaseous form of these molecules. So at any point, these molecules can change between phases based on the pressure, temperature, Pressure is going to be the amount of force applied over a specific area. That's pretty self-explanatory. You should know that there are several different units, though, for pressure. So often we refer to atmospheric pressure, which we label as one ATM. In medicine, though, you know, uh, you think about your blood pressure. A lot of times we use millimeters of mercury as well. So one ATM would be 760 millimeters of mercury. If you think about this, the more pressure there is, the more molecules are going to be forced really close together, and the more likely they're going to be presenting in a solid state. So the opposite is going to be true for gases where the less pressure there is, then the more likely you'll see in a gaseous state. 
with temperature, remember that heat is energy. So the more heat, the more energy there is, the more this will cause the molecules to bounce around and spread out. So this will most likely favor a gaseous state. It's important that you know, though, how you can change one phase to another. So let's talk about how a solid can be converted to a liquid and then a gas. So we'll use the classic example of water as our uh, example molecule. So starting as a solid, this is ice. The melting point is the temperature at which the solid will turn to liquid. So the melting point of water is zero degrees Celsius. Let's say that we have a ice cube that is starting out at minus five degrees Celsius and we add heat to the ice to increase the temperature. So you're increasing, you're increasing and you get to zero degrees Celsius. At this point, the ice won't just all of a sudden all flip into a liquid. You, you know this as you start to see your ice dissolve in water, or if you you know leave an ice cube out on the counter or something, you don't just see it go from completely solid to completely liquid all at once. So we have to add heat to fuel the conversion of the solid ice to liquid water. And this is known as the latent heat of fusion. So this is the number of calories required to convert one gram of a solid to liquid. So while we are still adding heat, the temperature of the water stays at zero degrees Celsius because the heat simply will fuel the conversion to the liquid state. It's interesting the fact that when we add heat, in this case, we're not simply increasing the temperature. When we get to these phase changes, the heat fuels the conversion from one phase to the other while our temperature in that container stays the same. Once we then have added enough heat to completely shift everything to liquid, now the more heat we add, the temperature will start to rise again, and this liquid water will go all the way up to the boiling point, which we know for water is 100 degrees Celsius. So at this point, the same thing happens where we get to the temperature at which the liquid water is going to turn out to vapor, and this is the boiling point. So the boiling point is a temperature where the liquid form now is going to convert to gaseous form. And we get to this section again here where we have the latent heat of vaporization. And this is now the number of calories required to convert one gram of liquid to solid. And again, no temperature is going to change here as we add heat because it's fueling the conversion of the liquid water now to the gas. And once we've converted it all to gas phase, now additional heat again will increase that temperature higher and higher and higher. Now, point to note, vaporization is the process of taking a liquid and converting it to a gas but this doesn't simply happen always at the boiling point. So when we're adding heat to water when it's 50 degrees Celsius, it doesn't simply wait all the way until it reaches 100 degrees Celsius and then the boiling point's reached and it all flips over. At any point, the liquid can convert to a gas regardless of the temperature if heat's provided. And so imagine for me now you have this closed cylinder that's halfway filled with water. So we're in this closed container here and above that water, you're gonna have space. And some of those water molecules are gonna to turn to gaseous form and they're gonna be hovering over top of this water. So those gaseous molecules will put some pressure then on the walls of the container as well as the height of the water. And this is known as the vapor pressure. So the amount of molecules that are hovering above the liquid in that closed container will make up what we call the vapor pressure. So the more molecules you have in that state, the higher your vapor pressure is. Once you reach that boiling point, so 100 degrees Celsius for water, 
the vapor pressure now is going to equal the atmospheric pressure. So I want you to keep that in mind here. It's not like it all just switches when you reach 100 degrees Celsius. You're going to always have some water and gaseous state in that closed container while it's increasing temperature. But once it gets to 100 degrees Celsius, now there's just enough of it in gaseous form that it matches the atmospheric pressure. And that's what the definition of a boiling point really is. So all this shifting based on heat and temperature is assuming that the pressure has remained the same. At any point, you can just apply more pressure to something and you can create a liquid from a gas. This is a perfect example here when we talk about our cylinders that we use behind the anesthesia machine. So your oxygen tank, your air tank, your nitrous, et cetera. We try to compress as much of that, those molecules together into this small container by applying more pressure. And if you do that, even if you have it at a high temperature where it should be in a gaseous state, you can convert it back to a liquid state just simply by adding that pressure. But there is this thing that's called critical temperature. And it's the highest temperature where the gas can be changed to a liquid by applying pressure to it. So that means if the critical temperature has already been reached, no matter how much pressure we try to cram all these molecules into this tank, we can't get it to turn into a liquid. It'll always stay a gas. For example, like I said, the gases that we deliver through our anesthesia machine, such as oxygen, air, nitrous, et cetera, we compress them with this pressure and shove as much into the cylinder as we can. But the critical temperature of oxygen is negative 119 degrees Celsius. So our room temperature, which is roughly 20 degrees Celsius, is already way above this temperature. So no matter how much pressure we push down on it, it'll always stay a gas. We'll never have liquid oxygen in this tank. However, the critical temperature of nitrous oxide is 36.5 degrees Celsius, which is above our room temperature. So if we apply enough pressure and we push all that nitrous into our tank, it'll convert that gas nitrous oxide to liquid form, which is why in practice, we actually see liquid nitrous oxide inside of our containers. So while that's critical temperature, we also have critical pressure. And this is just the opposite effect here. And it's the minimum pressure needed to convert that gas to a liquid. So AKA, if you're at the right temperature where you can convert that gaseous nitrous oxide to liquid form, the critical pressure is just simply saying this is the amount of pressure you have to apply in order to get it to switch to that liquid form. Hopefully you guys are all still with us. And this is going to wrap up part one of our chemistry and physics talk. In the second talk, we want to go through all of the different laws. We're going to go through the universal gas law, talk about Henry's law, Boyle's law, Charles law, etc., and talk about how they are going to affect the gases that we deliver through the anesthesia machine into the patient's lungs when they transfer over to the blood, how the patient breathes. So stay tuned. Hopefully, again, this is just a helpful review of some of the different concepts that we need to know for boards, and hopefully in a manner at which it makes sense and we can apply it a little bit more to our practice.